Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. It is a, a great joy to be with you. John, thanks for those lovely words. You are one of my favorite Americans, <laughs> right near the top. But it really is a joy to be uh, with you this morning and a great privilege to be able to open up God's Word uh, for us today. I don't know everything this morning, but I at least know two things. Number one, you're not here by accident. And number two, I'm not here by accident. And so the Lord has a good plan, a wise plan for every person here today. There's no coincidences. Nobody just shows up. So we're going to trust that the Lord will minister His grace uh, to you. I'm also aware of my great need for the Holy Spirit to move and work because as I look at my notes here, I have dead words on paper. And so if there's to be anything good that happens here in the next 30 minutes or so, the Lord needs to breathe some life into these very human words. So would you join me as I pray to that end? Our great God and Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I pray now that, that you would help me to speak your word clearly, faithfully, humbly, boldly. And I pray that these dear people here, by the work of your Holy Spirit, and by your grace would hear a far better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach. I pray that your spirit would bring to mind today and certainly throughout this week the great truths of the gospel that we might be led to love, to worship Christ with greater joy and passion. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. One of the more enjoyable things that we've done as a family over the years at Christmas is to go to Coeur d'Alene to check out the lights. They're everywhere. Many of you have been there. They're throughout the downtown area. They're at the hotel. They're on the trees. They're on boats. It's actually pretty impressive to see in person. I mean, where else can you look at a scene? Look, look, you see a nativity scene. You see Jesus in a manger with all of the animals, they're all glowing. And then right next to the baby Jesus in a manger, you see Santa lit up and holding a fishing pole. It's, it's a phenomenal scene. I think that's the definition of a mixed message. It has to be a mixed message. And that's one of the things, at least at this time of year, that we're kind of used to, aren't we? Because there's a lot of mixed messages, and there's a lot of hard turns that we have to take if we're going to understand what's really going on at Christmas. I was driving around in my car, or my truck actually, a couple weeks ago, I guess it was now, and had my three daughters in the back seat, and we were listening to Christmas music, and uh, uh, Joy to the World came on. I love that song. It's probably my favorite Christmas carol, even though we didn't sing it this morning. That's fine. I'm not offended by that. But I started to sing, and so, and I'm feeling it. Now, I am no Brian Dixon. But I was singing, and I'm thinking, this is great. Uh, even though my teenage daughters were all telling me to knock it off and stop, that just made me sing louder. And so I'm thinking, this is great. What's the next song going to be? This is phenomenal. Revival's going to break out. <laughs> and then the DJ paused, and you hear some chatter. And then I heard the words, Santa, baby, <laughs> hurry down the chimney tonight. That's a hard turn. 
that's also a mixed message. That, that was really hard to get from joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king to Santa baby. And yet every year at this time, we're confronted with these sorts of mixed messages and hard turns. So in the same mall where you can walk around and you go into one store and you hear, hark the herald angels sing, maybe even start to hum that a little bit, and you turn the corner, you walk into another store, you see Santa and the reindeer, and you see signs plastered for the biggest sale of the year. And so we, we ask the question, well, which is it? God and sinners reconciled or 75% off an air fryer? <laughs> it seems like the good news of great joy means something different for different people. Christmas and this message of Christmas, the meaning of Christmas, can actually get confusing and complicated really fast, even for many of us here sincere Christians, because our attention can be so drawn to certain aspects of the Christmas story, we can be so fixated on our favorite parts of Christmas that we are in danger of actually missing what's going on. We can actually miss the point. Now, I'm not just talking about your favorite celebrations and food and uh, gifts and so forth, the traditions that we all enjoy, but we can actually read and we can reread the Christmas story, and it's a fascinating story. It's a very interesting story, and we can be fixated on so many external elements. I mean, we have an angel, and the star, the shepherds, the wise men, the stable, the smelly animals, the freaked out teenage girl named Mary and her equally freaked out husband named Joseph. Now, all of these details are worthy of our time and consideration, but do we ever go deeper? Do we ever slow down long enough and, and really ask why? What does all that add up to? I mean, what's the purpose of all of those important details? What is the star and the angels and the wise men and the state? What does it all point to? I mean, when we when we add up all of these fascinating, interesting details of the Christmas story, what do we actually get? Our text here in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, tells us what we get. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that the Bible, our Bibles, speak with clarity about the message of Christmas. There's no mixed message in the Bible. God the Father knew exactly what He was doing in sending His Son to be born in a manger. And so here in our text in 1 Timothy, we find the Apostle Paul going deeper. It's what we need him to do for our hearts this morning. It's, it's as if Paul goes beneath the surface a little bit. What's underneath the tree, if you will? What, let's pop the hood and see what's underneath the hood. It's Christmas underneath all the details. And so Paul answers for us the question that really every one of us need to answer this morning. In a world of mixed messages, what is the profoundly deep and the profoundly true and the profoundly important message of Christmas? So if you have your Bibles open, I'd direct you to 1 Timothy 1. Let me just set the scene here. The Apostle Paul is writing to his good friend, his young friend, Timothy, and I'm going to, to really focus on just one verse this morning, and that is verse 15. Verse 15, brothers and sisters, is the King Daddy Topper this morning. Let me read it for you. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Verse 15 is the game changer. Fail to understand what's going on in that verse. Fail to apply it or begin to make those connections. Just sort of gloss over that and move on to the next verses. And unfortunately, you're going to have to settle for another mixed message at Christmas. I hope you enjoy your air fryer. But understand this verse. Begin to see how it might actually apply to your life. Take it to heart, and you are well on your way to celebrating Christmas in the way that God actually intends. Now, even before Paul says what he says about Christ Jesus, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Well, Paul here is quoting an ancient saying. It's been passed down. So it's not like Paul is just making this up, some quick thinking on his part. Not at all. Paul has heard this. He's now passing it on to his young friend Timothy and by extension to the folks gathered there in that first century church and now to us, to all the saints. We know two things about this saying. Number one, it is trustworthy And number two, it's supposed to be received and accepted and believed as true by everybody. So what does Paul mean when he says this saying is trustworthy? If I say to you, Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States, that's a true statement. It's a true historical fact. But the fact that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States That doesn't really change the way you live, does it? That doesn't really change or impact your life in any material way moving forward in the future. But let's say that you're boarding a plane tomorrow to fly anywhere where it's sunny and warm. And I say to you, the plane that you are flying on is safe. You can trust it. When you fly on this plane, you're going to get to your destination. Well, that does actually change your life, doesn't it? That actually does impact your life moving forward. I mean, nobody would board a plane if, as you're, you know, taking your carry-on luggage in and you hear the pilot come over the cockpit and say, folks, howdy from the cockpit here, just want to let you know, I'm 50-50 on this plane. I'm not sure we're going to make it, but we're going to have a go at it, so go ahead and find your seat and we'll take off. No, if you're flying on a plane, you need to know that it is trustworthy because your life actually depends on it. Paul's saying here, this is not just a true statement. What I'm about to say about Jesus, it's not just a general truth, take it or leave it. No, this saying actually affects your life. It affects your eternal destiny. It's completely trustworthy, so you need to pay attention. You need to listen to this because everything that I'm about to say about Jesus actually really does affect your life. It is trustworthy. And the second thing he says is that it's to be accepted, that is received and believed by everybody. And notice what Paul says here. Full acceptance. Full. So not partial, not On your good days, you can get behind this, but totally, completely. 
So it's not hedging your bets a little bit. It's not, it's not waiting, just thinking, oh, I, need, I think I need to do a little more research before I fully commit. No, full acceptance, literally in the Greek there, it means that you can lean all your weight. So in other words, if I jumped on this, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, but I'm going to lean all my weight on this. It's going to stand. It's going to hold. It's going to be secure. That's what Paul's saying here. You can lean all your weight, everything you are, on this saying. So it requires a personal commitment on your part to actually say, okay, this, this is not just a general statement. This is true for me. This is, this is true in my life. In other words, brothers and sisters, you're willing to bank all your happy tomorrows on what Paul is saying here because your life actually depends on it. So what does Paul actually say? I mean, what is then this profoundly trustworthy message, this true message of Christmas? Well, again, here in a world of mixed messages, Paul's very clear, he's, and he's very succinct. And so I want my words to be equally as clear and equally as succinct and even simple. So here's the message of Christmas. Here's, here's what's going on underneath the hood from the Apostle Paul in this text in 1 Timothy. Jesus loves sinners, and Jesus saves sinners. That, brothers and sisters, is the saying that is trustworthy and is deserving of your full acceptance. Jesus loves sinners, and Jesus saves sinners. Now, the good news for all of us here is that we're sinners. So you qualify. Jesus loves you. Now, some of you may be here this morning and are thinking, well, I don't know about that. I don't necessarily feel a lot of love. And let's be honest, if I look at this last week of my life, I haven't always been that lovable because the people around me tell me that. They remind me. Well, Paul gets you. He understands you because this is Paul's personal testimony. Look at verse 13. Paul's saying, look, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent. So this is Paul's spiritual resume, which, again, you you read that and you think that's not exactly a resume that we ought to shoot for. That's not the goal. There was no mixed message about Paul's religious activities prior to his dramatic conversion that we read about in Acts chapter 9. At one point, Paul was that guy. He was a hell-bent, bigoted, self-righteous murderer. I mean, if you looked at Paul at that point, you would say that is absolutely the last guy on earth that God would ever choose to save, to do anything good with. I mean, he's, he's a lost cause. So how do we explain this, what appears to be this dramatic transformation that the Apostle Paul experienced? Well, two times in verse 13 and again in verse 16, Paul says, I received mercy. I received mercy. And in verse 14, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus overflowed for me from the faith and the love that I received from Jesus. So the very short answer, how can we possibly explain this dramatic transformation for the Apostle Paul? He actually experienced the deep, deep love of Jesus. That's what changed his life. 
Guilt can't do that. Condemnation can't do that. What can change a person's heart? I mean, what changed your heart? What still changes mine? It's the love of Jesus, the deep love of Jesus. That's how any of us are changed. And Paul says it's a love that, well, it's a love that's merciful. So mercy doesn't mean that, that God the Father winked at Paul's sins, that it he ignored Paul's sins. He just said, look, I got better plans for you, so I'm just going to, that's a rough period of your life, Paul. Let's just not talk about that. He doesn't do that. We experience the mercy of God when God does not do for us what we actually deserve him to do. Paul deserved to be punished for his sins. His sins were his sins. There's no denying that. But God granted him mercy so that God the Father chose not to levy on Paul the just punishment for his sins. Instead, what did God do? Well, God levied Paul's just punishment for his sins on Jesus. Now, why would God do that? Because that doesn't really compute with us. In our world, that, just, that doesn't make a lot of sense at all, does it? I mean, in our world, it makes sense to balance the books. At the end of the day, make sure the scales of justice are balanced. You break it, you what? Well, first you complain about it, but then you buy it. Yes, you sin against the holy God. You pay for it. So why would God show mercy to someone as undeserving as Paul? Let's just be honest here since we're in church. Why would God, why would God show mercy to people like us? Well, that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is God's great steadfast love for sinners. John 3, 16 for God so loved the world, and that doesn't mean like geographic areas. God so loved you, people, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the God we're dealing with at Christmas. This is the God we we enjoy dealing with every day of the year. Our God is a merciful God, a loving God, which is actually extraordinarily good news for everyone here today because if God did not love sinners, there's no joy at Christmas. I mean, really, what are we celebrating? We're just wasting time. So you know what I find remarkable about Paul in this text? I mean, Paul is so brutally honest about himself. And, and about his history. So you don't read here about any sort of blame shifting or sugarcoating. Paul doesn't hide behind his good qualities. Yeah, that was a really rough period of life, but, you know, moving on. Now, Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was the persecutor. I was the insolent opponent. So you know what Paul's saying there? I deserve punishment. I actually deserve to die. So notice what Paul does. He, he actually puts himself within the Christmas message here. He, he puts himself in the story. So, so mercy and grace, God's great patience, that wasn't just something in the spiritual cloud that, that maybe some of it would just filter down to Paul at some point. And notice Paul is not saying, look, there's a good reason why God saved me. I was earning bits of righteousness here and there. I was trending in the right direction. I, 
I was having a pretty good year spiritually. That's not it at all. Paul's saying that the mercy and grace of Christ overflowed to him because of the great love of God in Christ for him. And that's how that lands on Paul's soul. Paul's saying, I'm one of those sinners that Jesus actually loves. I'm one of those sinners. I was so far gone, but yet here I received the mercy and the grace of Christ. So Paul's saying, this is about me. I'm not an innocent bystander here. This is actually my life. This is the way that the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ came to me. How's that for transparency? Just honesty. In an inauthentic world, so often, I mean, we, we could use this kind of, well, brutal honesty about life, about Jesus. So I wonder if for some of you here today, probably the best way that you can actually celebrate Christmas this year is to stop being so polite with Jesus. You actually need to be honest about your life. Be honest about your sins. He can handle it. Be honest about your struggles. Be honest about your fears. Be honest about your doubts. Be honest about the ways that you, you functionally actually, well, may, maybe you're not as close to Jesus as you thought you were. That's one of the things, again, I love about the Apostle Paul here is that, at least in this text, he's kind of the exact opposite of polite. I mean, Paul knows he doesn't deserve anything good from Jesus. So what does he do? Well, really, the only thing he can do in desperation he throws himself at the mercy and the grace and the love of God in Christ. When is the last time that you've done that? Just in, in really absolute desperation? Because there are no other options? Or because you're just flat out of other options? That you just say, Lord, help. Lord, I am that sinner. I'm that sinner that, Jesus, you, you actually do love. So help. So some of you this, this Christmas may need to repent of your politeness towards Jesus, a politeness that says, I, I know I've got some issues. I'm going to try and take care of that. I'm going to try and take care of my own business. And Lord, if I need you, I'll go to you. How polite. Or a politeness that says, there's a lot going on in my life, Lord, so I'm going to pray, but I'm not really not expecting you to do too much because I prayed about this last week or last month and nothing really changed. I just want you to know I'm going to try and handle my own business. Low expectations. It's very polite. Or, Lord, I know there's people who are in far greater need, so I'll just kind of wait my turn. If you've got anything left over for me, that's polite. What if Jesus showed up at your house this Christmas for Christmas dinner? I mean, if Jesus rang the doorbell, what would you do? I'm sure most of us would invite him in, because if you don't invite Jesus in, that doesn't seem like it's going to go well. doesn't matter how good the food is. You'd probably ask him to sit down at your table. You'd probably eat your food. You'd 
talk to him. You'd be very kind and considerate. You'd listen carefully to what he has to say. You'd maybe invite him to participate in all of your Christmas traditions, singing carols, eating cookies, opening presents. I mean, if Jesus was in your house, you would want him to be part of all the family Christmas festivities. I think most of us would be very, very polite to him. We'd see him and we'd treat him as our honored guest around our tables. But see, here's the problem. Especially at Christmas, Jesus is not looking to be your guest. He actually wants to be your God. So, so he's not content just to be part of your Christmas celebrations. He's not really desiring to have you look at him with wonder from afar. He actually wants you to worship him as your ruling king. He actually wants you to say, I'm one of those sinners that Jesus loves. It's almost too good to believe. He wants you to be in awe of his great love for you. So I think if Jesus walked into Paul's house, I don't think Paul would offer him a seat at his table. I think Paul would be on his knees, face down, because that's all he could do. Because Paul understood the depth of the love of Christ for him, and it absolutely changed his life. And through the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, every day, the Holy Spirit is pouring that same love into our hearts. So there's no mixed message at Christmas. I mean, Jesus really loves sinners. He really does, which means that he really does love you and me. And that ought to give us a good degree of hope. He not only loves sinners, but notice here that Jesus actually saves sinners. So it's one thing to to know and be convinced that Jesus loves sinners. That's a really good starting point. But if that were it, we'd actually still be hopelessly lost in our sins, wouldn't we? It'd be like saying, look, I love you a whole lot. You have no idea how much I love you, and I see the predicament you're in. I'm really sorry, though. I can't do anything about that. But that's not Jesus. Jesus actually did something on our behalf out of his great love, and Paul is clear about what that something is. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world. That is, he was born to save sinners. He came into the world. Now, very few people deny that Jesus lived in the first century, but what is often hotly debated is, is, is why Jesus was born in the first place. And Paul here makes clear that Jesus came into the world, meaning that he existed prior to his entrance into the world as a baby boy in a manger. So Paul's suggesting here, he's actually telling us that Jesus existed a long time before he was born in a manger. In fact, Jesus was in heaven with God the Father, ruling and reigning at the right time, the appointed time, in the fulfillment of time, God sent this Jesus to be born in that manger. He came into the world. Now, Paul is also clear on exactly the identity of this one that came into the world, Christ Jesus came into the world. Christ is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So do you understand what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying that Jesus, the Messiah, 
the anointed one, the Savior, the true King. He's the one that God sent into this world. He's the one that has come. And for what purpose? Why would God the Father send His Messiah to this world? Well, not to be a great religious guru, to have people follow Him around, not even to be a profound moral teacher, just to dispense a whole bunch of really true maxims of life, certainly not to give us reasons once a year to overeat, overspend, and get a screaming deal on air fryers. Verse 15, Christ Jesus, God's anointed Messiah, came into the world, and Paul's clear here, He came into the world for one reason, to save sinners, to save sinners. John 3, 17. So that's the one right after John 3, 16. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Let me just stop right there. Do you know the real meaning of Christmas is not that God is angry at you. It's not that God is really frustrated at you because you are made a mess of your life. Like, get it together. That's not it. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's why Jesus came into the world. So He was born to save sinners. And as it turns out, sin was something that Paul knew very well. Verse 15, Paul says, again, brutal honesty here, I'm the foremost. I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the chief sinner. Not a title you want. But Paul earned it. Paul understands himself to be the best sinner that he knows. Nobody's better at sinning than Paul. And even right now, you might be thinking about, well, I, I know some people close to me who are really good at sinning, but they're not better than Paul was. And here again, Paul puts himself in the central message of Christmas. Christ Jesus, he says, came into the world to save sinners. That's me. I'm the biggest. You're not going to meet a bigger sinner than me. So you want to talk about a guy, again, who was trending in all the wrong directions, but then what happened? Well, he received mercy. He received grace. He received that perfect patience of Christ, verse 16. And notice the transformation. Now, Paul's just bubbling over. In fact, he can't help himself. He can't stop praising God for saving him. That's verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever 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 and ever. And Paul's not, he's not going to stay silent on that, is he? Paul was the very best of sinners, saved by the very best that God had to offer which was his own son, born in a manger, yes, to one day die on a cross. And so please notice Paul's point here. This is what we need to understand this morning. If Christ Jesus could save him, chief sinner, well, then he can save anybody. I mean, if he saved Paul... Well, he can save you too. I mean, are you out? Are you going to seek and kill and maim and destroy Christians this afternoon? 
I mean, don't really answer that, but I hope not. But that's what Paul was doing. So Paul's saying, if he can save me, your sin is actually not too bad. No matter where you came from this morning, no matter where you're going this afternoon, no matter what you have left undone or done this past week, you are not beyond the saving arm of Christ Jesus. That's the message, brothers and sisters, of Christmas. But in order to actually celebrate Christmas as God intends, well, you do need to receive the gift of God's forgiveness in Christ personally. In other words, you need to put yourself in this story just as Paul did. You, you need to first acknowledge, like Paul did, that I am one of those sinners that Jesus actually loves. And yes, I'm one of those sinners that need a divine rescue. That's me. Now, I don't know how this hits you this morning. I know, at least at Christmas time, most of us don't, we don't tend to like to think of ourselves as really desperate sinners. I kind of feel like that's what New Year's is for. <laughs> Read into that what you will. <laughs> and maybe you came this morning hoping for just a slightly more positive, feel-good message at Christmas. I get it. I mean, every one of us here, I think, we all know we need a little bit of tweaking, a little bit, we know we're not perfect, but are we really as bad as it seems like Paul's saying here? Because let's be honest, if you look around at the person next to you, you tend to feel a little bit better about yourself. I mean, I'm prideful enough that on my days, if I look at you and say, well, I compare myself to you, I actually feel pretty good. Here, here's the double-edged sword, though. It's, some of us will feel pretty good in comparison to others, but some of us feel absolutely lousy. And neither are true because we're not actually comparing ourselves to others according to our own standards. The Bible has only one standard, and in that sense, all of us are in the same boat. The Bible's standard is perfection, and all of us fall woefully short. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It actually doesn't really matter how short, just short. So if I asked you this morning, let's be honest, how much of a, how much of a sinner do you really believe you are? I mean, what would you say? I mean, our answer should be enough. I'm enough of a sinner that I actually need saving by Jesus. I don't need to get a second opinion. I don't need to ask anybody. And some of you are thinking, okay, well, what about total depravity? What do you think? About? This isn't the time and place to talk about total depravity, partial depravity. The point is you're enough depraved, and I'm enough depraved that our only hope is to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And so the Bible's clear about the nature of our predicament, and it's so much more than just a slight tweak here, a little refining here, we just need a slight nudge in the right direction to compensate for a few unsightly character flaws. Brothers and sisters, in the gospel, God has given us two vivid reminders of his great supernatural saving work for us, the crib and the cross. So with the birth of Jesus, God came to earth, born in a manger. He lived and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us at the cross. Jesus Christ died in our place, absorbing the holy wrath of God that we deserve, just like Paul, and has given us eternal life. So in the crib, God with us. At the cross, 
Christ died for us. So when you doubt God's love for you, and you will, and it may be this afternoon, or it may be the next time that you, well, you fall flat on your face. When you wonder about whether or not your prayers are actually reaching heaven, why is nothing happening? If you wonder if God is distant, if He's aloof, if He's keeping His distance from you. No, look to the crib where His Son was born, and then consider the cross where His Son died. Why? Underneath the hood to save you. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas reminds us that Jesus loves sinners and that Jesus saves sinners. That saying, brothers and sisters, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It is deserving of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. So what about you? Let's talk about you, shall we? Maybe you're here and you still think, you know what? I don't know that I really believe that Jesus came to save sinners. Doesn't he save generally good people? People who show some great spiritual potential? People who are at least trying a lot to, to be a better person? Well, something's keeping you from confessing your great need for him. Perhaps you're here and you think, you know, that's a good message. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus, that's good. That's, that's good for many people, but I just don't see that for me. Well, then you've yet to place yourself and your life within this story. You, you've yet to do what, what Paul does here, to say, look, this is about me. This is about my life. This trustworthy saying, everything in my life depends on that saying. If it's not true and trustworthy, then I don't have any hope. But if it is, then I have eternal hope. It could be this morning that you're here and well, you, you know that you know that you're a sinner. You know you're in need of redemption. But let's be honest, up to this point, in, in function, you've actually been trying to save yourself. So you've been looking around to other people or relationships or friendships or your bank account or your giftedness or your effervescent personality. You light up the room. Well, you wouldn't be the first and you certainly wouldn't be the last person to to trust in false saviors. But you know what happens when you trust in false saviors? False saviors give you false hope 100% of the time. At some point, you need to realize that there's actually no substitute for the real Savior. And yes, perhaps you're here and you kind of just dragged yourself in this morning. I'm really glad you did. But nobody needs to remind you of how deep your need is, your sins. You wake up in the morning and they're there. Perhaps you're being crushed. And so you're here thinking, I don't even know. That sounds good, Brinkman, but I don't think Jesus could save me. I don't know. Could he actually love me? Try him. Turn to him and try him. What have you got to lose? This saying is trustworthy. You can bank your life on it. And it's deserving of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. So you need to figure out what you're going to do with that Jesus 
this Christmas. I'll close with this. For the last several years as a family, the Brinkmans have gone up to Green Bluff, just up the road here, to get our Christmas tree. And as it turns out, we've gone to the same uh, Christmas or the same tree farm for the last several years. So if you ask the other people in my family, if you do something more than once, that's a tradition. And you don't mess with tradition, so you've got to do the same thing year after year after year, which is fine. So that's, uh, on this particular occasion, it was later in the afternoon near closing time, we managed to find our tree, tag it, drag it to the front to pay for it before dark and before they closed. That was Christmas miracle number one. Christmas miracle number two, Becky was about to pay the, for the tree, and the lady said, well, your tree's already been paid for. She said, somebody this morning wanted to pay for somebody else's tree, and you would not believe how hard it's been to give away a free tree. Now, I'm hearing this, and I'm thinking, you have no idea who the Brinkmans are. We will take your free tree. Do you have anything else that you would like to give to us? Here's my card. Same time, same place next year. But she literally said, I've offered a free tree for the whole afternoon, and nobody would take it. And everybody up to this point has just been said, has said, thank you, that's very kind, but no thanks, give it to someone else. She said, you guys are the first people to say yes all afternoon. And you could tell that she was just finally relieved to, to find somebody who would take her free tree. She was happy to give it. We were certainly happy to receive it. And I got to believe somewhere in Spokane, there was some family who received some great joy because they knew that somebody in Spokane received a free tree because of their generosity. The deep and profound message of Christmas, it, it's not about getting a free tree. The, the truly deep message of Christmas, underneath the tree and around all the tinsel and the presents and the carols and the cookies, is that Jesus loves you and that Jesus saves you. And yet so many people hear that. They hear the good news of the gospel and they say, thanks, no thanks, I'm good. Give it to somebody else. And so Jesus freely offers himself to you this Christmas. Jesus offers himself to you as God, as your God who loves you, who's provided your very salvation. What are you going to do with him? Thanks, no thanks. Give it to somebody else. Or we actually receive him. Let's pray.